Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we have a special guest. It's Jean Boussier. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are and why you're famous. Hey there. Yeah, uh, famous, I don't know, but I've been working at Shopify for nine years now. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I ended up being like, I'm now a Rails core contributor, I'm also like a Ruby committer, and might end a bunch of gems there and there. And over my time at Shopify, I worked on many different things, like um, a lot of CI and, and continuous delivery, many kind of like SRE kind of uh, work. And now I'm on the Ruby and Rails infrastructure team. So I work like quasi full time on either open source or like upgrading all open source projects inside Shopify and things like that. Very cool. So we brought you on to talk about Pitchfork. Now, Pitchfork, it looks like it's a Rack HTTP server. I think I think the ones that I've used that kind of compare are Unicorn and Puma. But uh, do you want to kind of give us the 10,000-foot 10, view on what Pitchfork is and why people might want to yeah. think about it? <laughs> uh, we definitely need to, to dive in to explain how it works. But basically, right. it started as a fork of Unicorn. So in terms of ergonomics, it's going to be very much like Unicorn, but it's going to use way, way less memory than Unicorn because it uses this semi-new technique, which is reforking to improve the copy and write performance of your application. We're definitely going to have to explain that a bit later, but basically it's right. better at sharing memory. All right. So yeah, so it's an HTTP server. You're probably going to have less, what, memory usage? So yeah, so do I, just to get started with using it, do I just, you know, pick it up and use it just like Unicorn or Puma? Or well, <laughs> do I have to do anything else to get it to go? So hopefully, hopefully in a bit, yes. But right now there's a few challenge. Uh, right now it's very much like I, I think I'm clearing the green meets experimental. I'm currently working on onboarding one of our apps uh, in production to like iron out any kind of issues we might have. But it's always going to be a slightly harder than, than Puma and Unicorn to onboard in. Because what it does is that to improve the memory usage, it periodically, periodically refork your application. So if okay. you're familiar with Puma and Unicorn, you know, like you boot, they boot your application and then they fork once or like they fork multiple workers from the same process and then they mm -hmm. stop there. What Pitchfork does is that frequently, like on, on a regular basis, it's going to tell one of the worker, okay, you're just a new master process now. And oh, it's going to switch. Yeah, it's going to become the new master and like the old worker is going to one by one shut down and the new master is going to create new ones. So it, that's all it achieved, like a much better copy and write performance because as your process lives, you know, like when you start forking, you get an exact copy of the memory of your parent. But mm -hmm. it's thanks to copy and write, you don't have uh, a physical copy. It's just like you're pointing to the same memory region. And right. then whenever you touch, like you write into one of those memory pages, the kernel just stops you and make a real copy and gives you a real copy. So, which means like when you fork a process, like a, I don't know, one gigabyte process, and you end up with two gigabytes, two one gigabyte process. And the, if you look at the uh -huh. RSS, you know, like the memory usage, the kernel, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's using two gigabytes. But in, in truth, it's using just one because everything is shared. Right. And so that's, that's all like Puma and Unicorn kind of don't use too much memory. The problem is that Ruby is not particularly well, it's not that it's badly designed, but it's not trying to optimize for this so much. 
So, for okay. example, when you know you compile your file, like uh, there's uh, inside the VM, you have like uh, some bytecode, right? And to improve performance inside this bytecode, Ruby reserves some tiny memory regions where it caches things. Like, uh, for example, if you look up a constant, it's going to say, like, the when you compile your method for that constant, it's going to reserve like a tiny, like two, three bytes. And the first time you execute your method, you say, oh, I don't know what that constant is. And it's going to do a slow constant lookup. Like, it's fairly heavy operation. But then when you, it stores that in that tiny cache, what's called an inline cache. And on the next execution, it's going to say, oh, I already know what that constant is. And so the problem with that is that with Unicorn or Puma, you boot your application, but you never execute most of the code, right? Let's say your controller, you're not going to call your controller during your boot phase. It's only after mm -hmm. you forked that you're going to execute it. And right. so you fork, you share 100% of your memory, and then just after a few requests, you're going to let just 30 pages after pages, and then you're only going to share like half of it. Basically, from mm -hmm. what I measured in production, most application after after just a uh, hundred requests, they fall to like sixty or forty percent shared memory only. So I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let me so, let yes. me see if I can. So effectively, what you're talking about, and we've covered processes and copy on write and stuff on, mm -hmm. in, in previous episodes. It's been quite a long time since we've talked about it, but yeah, effectively, you fork the process, and it says. Well, I'm just going to, rather than copy everything that I need from the old process, I'm going to use the same memory space as the old process. And then when I have to overwrite something that was in the old memory space, that's when I add that specifically to my memory because I don't want to pollute the other memory space. And so what that does is it allows your processes to run without a ton of memory bloat on stuff that everything kind everything that's forked off of that one process already knows about yeah that's an excellent explanation because in a running web server i mean it's going to depend from an application to another but you are going to have a huge part of the memory but it's going to be the same in every process you know you, right. you're going to have the, the memory you use to like render your request and and things like that and you're going to have like all the supporting memory where that's all like your code your classes your translation data all these things and so, yeah, that's so Pitchfork achieved like much better memory performance is that it just mm -hmm. is able to share much more. The downside is, uh, since you refork, there's, that's why like fork is not very popular in many circles is that when you fork, two things happen, like two bad things happen. Uh, first, all the threads, but the one you forked from end up dead in the child. So if you have like a background thread that was like keeping things updated or whatever, you need to make sure to restart it in your children. Okay. So that's a first challenge. So like if you have some libraries do this, you know, they start a thread to do things and then you fork and the thread is dead and it no longer works. Uh, a famous library library that does this is uh, gRPT and they, does, they do this in like C lens. And historically, if the thread was dead, like your main thread would wait for something that the background thread was supposed to do and that would never do and the process would just block forever, right? So very bad things can happen if you have some dead threads. And the second thing that many application or lots of code doesn't deal necessarily very well with is that you inherit all your file descriptors. So that's them, but file descriptors are uh, everything that's like open file, open sockets. So if you have something like say a database connection or like a Redis connection and you fork both the children and the parents effectively in the same connection, so for instance, oh, the parent uh, does a query and the children does one as well, they might get 
it shows us response. So you can have uh, terrible things where, oh. you know, <laughs> so very I mean, fun, like, wh- play- what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just like you're, you're just uh, <laughs> playing Russian roulette with your, your network packets, basically. So this can, like people who, who, who have done like Ruby deployment for a while, either with Unicorn or Puma, they're somewhat familiar with this because they know that, for instance, you know, Active Record or something, you need to configure Puma to close connection and before fork and reestablish after. So they know about this. But the thing is like the vast majority of the code is not executed during the boot phase. And Puma mm-hmm. just boot your application and then fork. So there's lots of code out there that wouldn't support being forked after they have been being used but that currently works with Puma, but wouldn't work with Pitchfork. Mm. So that's why like, I put a big warning on, on Pitchfork is like, you need to really own your stack, being able to vet your dependencies to know it's going to work with. Or either that, or you need like a very good staging on which you run tests to figure out the problems. Like don't go willy-nilly enabling it in production because you're going to have trouble. That's for sure. My hope, though, is that in the near future, it's going to be a bit easier. Because historically, I don't know if you remember, like, the, the Rails 3 days where you had to say, oh, like, you, you had, like, the thread-safe mode for Rails because nobody was running thread at the time. And in the end, it didn't took that long for the community to just make most of the code out there thread-safe. And so I'm working on, like, popular gems and things like that to make them fork-safe, like, refork-safe. So, for instance, I... I made patches for the connection pool gem to automatically detect when the process was forked and just abandon all the connection and start over. Like just today, I was making a PR to a uh, HTTP gem that's called a XCon or something. Like I'm just looking mm-hmm. at like the popular gem that may have trouble with this and I'm just like submitting patches so that like the ecosystem just becomes more compatible with, uh, with Pitchfork. And I'm just generally working yeah, on, on improving the ecosystem around this. So that hopefully in, I don't know, a year, two years, enabling Pitchfork just become like just adding a gem to your gem file and you're good to go. Makes sense. So I kind of want to um, step in and just see if I understand what Pitchfork is doing then. So what you said was that Puma effectively stands up the app and then forks immediately. And so everything yes. that forks off of that master process doesn't, they only share whatever's initialized on on the app. And so what you're saying is with Pitchfork, when you fork off of something that's been running for a while, it's going to share more memory because it's loaded in the stuff that it needed when it shared or when it ran. And so it'll share a larger percent of the, the memory. So that is true. That is one of the things because like, there's this, uh, this pattern that is very common in the Ruby community, you know, which is like the Oracle, like lazy memoization kind of thing. And so it's not uncommon to see application that grow in memory after after uh-huh. they've been deployed and then they stabilize, right? So there's right. definitely this dimension. And Pitchfork's gonna help with that because after a few requests, all this like when your memory stabilizes, it reforks from that and so that that's gonna help. But in addition, there's the thing I talked about a bit earlier, which is like say like the inline caches in the virtual machine, is that there's memory region, especially uh, that when you just booted your application are not yet initialized. And then once you execute that code path once, it's stable, like it writes into it. So it invalidates copy and write, but it doesn't invalidate copy and write on every execution, only on the first few ones. So there's this idea of like, for the first few requests, your your memory pages are very volatile, like it's going to be invalidated mm-hmm. a, a lot. But as, as you go over like requests, more and more requests as your application warms up, that's no longer will be the case. So um, the heuristic 
Pitchfork use right now to to know when to do a new generation, like refork new workers. It's like based on on uh, number of requests. And what I've experimented with for now is just like oh, after 100 requests, you do a new generation, and then after a thousand more requests, you do yet another generation. And the idea is that after a while, you don't even need to refork anymore. It's it's just stabilized, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the uh, the copy and write efficiency graph, right? You if you look at the memory metrics and you see how many pages are shared, uh, you're going to start at 100% and you're going to drop very quickly to like something like 50-ish percent. And then you're going to have like a very slow curve. Like it's going to be a logarithmic or asymptotic kind of curve with a very slow decrease. And once you're there, it's good. You can just forget about it. It's stable. So it's a bit like a like a JIT, you know, that need to warm up. It's kind of the same idea, but you right. need to warm up to share more memory. That's really cool. So what made you want to write this? <laughs> right, right. That's a very long story. So as I said, I've been working at Shopify for like nine years or something, and I've been working on, on Monolith a lot, which is gigantic. Like really, it's, you have no idea how big it is. Uh-huh. And so I've been focusing on like memory usage for a very long time. Like it's been, uh, I think like four or five years. I'm just regularly, it's like a, it's like a kind of a show I come back to, you know, I just look at like, oh, where did we degrade? Where did we start using more memory lately? I have a set of dashboards. I have like, a, I've written something that's called Heap Profiler that takes like Heap dumps and just makes you like a kind of a summary of where your memory is being used. Like I, I've been doing a lot of work in that area for a while. And credits uh, to with you, uh, at some point I saw, like I found a some kind of experimental feature in Puma that has been written by, I'm really sorry, uh, he recognizing himself. Someone who write like an experimental feature for Puma, but kind of like pretty much does the same idea of like reforking. So they, they call it a refork worker, I think, or fork worker, which is the same idea than, than pitchfork. But the way it's implemented at like a major limitation is, so in Puma, you have like the master or control process, like the cluster process that forks the workers. And what they did is that they said, oh, when you trigger a refork, then the first worker become like fox new workers by itself. But then what you end up with is like you have the cluster, which is the parent of the worker zero, which is a parent of the new generation of worker. Mm-hmm. So now you not only have like a, a parent in some children, you have like a grandparent. And the problem in, with that is that if the, the middle process, the one that the worker zero dies, your workers become orphans. And that's, you know, like, um, that's sometimes you hear zombie process, not really the same thing, but like, it's like in Unix, when you want to do a daemon, like demonize a process, you fork twice, right? Mm-hmm. You do a middle process and then you let the middle process die. And the, the grandchildren is reattached to PID one, which is like the init process and becomes independent and nobody tracks it. And that for a web server is very bad because it means like you have no control over that child anymore and like you don't know what happened. And where, and so I was like, whoa, this is like a cool idea, but there's no way I put that in production. Like we, we're gonna have like, it's just too dangerous, right? And I was, I don't know, on Hacker News or something. And I saw something that was added to Linux just like five years ago or something, which is called uh, Pierre Child Sub Reaper. And so it's a new API in Linux where you can, as a process, you can uh, declare yourself as not exactly the new init, but you're going to say if any of my children or grandchildren or whatever become detached and need to be reattached to someone, reattach them to me. And that's why it hit mm-hmm. me that it was actually possible not to fork 
children, but to fox siblings. So it was possible for a process to like fox siblings of itself if the parent was cooperative. And that's when I put one and one together that I was like, oh, we could do this cool thing. And that's when I started working on Pitchfork because yeah, that was a combination of those two ideas. Oh, and I should say this need for this feature means that like the main appeal of Pitchfork is Linux only. Like you cannot, like you can run Pitchfork on macOS or FreeBSD or whatever, but you won't be able to enable reforking unless you have this feature. So I guess the other question I have is, is this something that you're using at Shopify now? And what kind of results are you getting out of it? Right. So unfortunately, not quite yet. I'm actually working on it this week because I, I, I wrote Pitchfork last year towards the end of the year. And then there was a new Ruby release coming up. And I'm, I'm the guy, since I had experience in CI at Shopify, I'm the guy who just run nightly builds to make sure the release is going to be nice, nice and clean for uh-huh. everyone. So I just put Pitchfork on the side for a bit. And it's just like this week that uh, some team said, oh, we had this problem, whatever. Do you want to try Pitchfork on, on a wrap? And I was like, you know what? <laughs> All my dear, I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm going to come. So I'm like uh, working on making their app uh, folks safe right now. And uh, hopefully I should deploy it like next week or something. So if you want to know, just Follow me on Twitter or whatever. I will probably share graphs or numbers soon, but that's my hope. And so no, other than that, I only have like micro benchmarks. Uh, if you look at the Pitchfork repo, there's a specially crafted application to to showcase what I've talked about before, you know, like the inline caches and things. So it's something like an application that's about 300 megabytes, like one process. And I benchmark Puma, two workers and two threads against Pitchfork for workers. And Pitchfork can end up using like twice as little memory as Puma. But again, it's like, I don't want to give too much hopes. All of those results are extremely dependent on what your app is doing. Uh, different applications going to have very different memory profiles and will be able to benefit much more from Pitchfork than others. So it's going to be very, very valuable regardless. So I never knew that you could uh, eager load names, namespaces like that in Rails. Do you find yourself like as Shopify, like throwing a ton of stuff in that eager load process? <laughs> or is that like a huge, or, a hu- or is that like a, a huge no-no, like, hey, we're getting to our limit, like maybe we should back off? No, actually. So yeah, that's funny because uh, that's kind of a misconception I try to, to fight against is that there's many developers uh, who, they try to lazy initialize things because saying, oh, we might not need it. So my only compute it when we need it and then we store it because it costs us a lot to compute. And the problem with that is if it's not initialized during boot, first, the first request to eat that code path is going to be slower than the remaining ones. So I'm going to talk about something that many people may have experienced. It's like those shark fin looking latency graph when you deploy. If you, if when you deploy your app, you see like latency raising, it's very likely that you have way too many lazily initialized things in your application. It's not a good thing. You much, I'd much rather make the boot time a bit slower if it means that I have like much smoother deploys where latency stay, stay, um, stable. And so, yes, we, you have this thing in Rails, which is like eager load namespaces, which is very useful for these things where you can have something lazy in development and then you put it in that in that list and Rails will call it for you, like eager load it, like it's going to call a method on it, but allow you to pre-warm those objects during boot. So that's going to ensure that it's, it's booted in the parent. So if it's going to be, that's going to be in a memory region that is going to be copy and write later on. So you actually might not pay as much because you think like, oh, I'm going to add like one megabyte to my process. 
But if you use, say, 10 children, you're not adding one megabyte, you're adding 100 kilobytes. And that's why, like, that's another dimension of, like, how to reduce memory usage in production is, is to use bigger servers or bigger boxes. I hear a lot of complaints about Ruby memory usage, but I think it's in part because a large part of the community using things like Heroku with like 500 megs or something like that. So they can only have like two, three Puma workers, but at Shopify, like we run something like 32 unicorn workers or is some, mm-hmm. one of our app is even like 90 children. Because as I said, like you have like one gig and then if you have 10 process, like it's going to be 100 megs. So the more, the more workers, Puma workers, unicorn workers doesn't matter. The more you use of those, the less having some pre-computed memory in your application is is a big deal, right? So you really want to benefit of that. And so, yes, uh, your own namespace is a very underused API, in my opinion, and at least that Shopify is like, there's probably 50 entries in there. And it's just uh, kind of ridiculous. That's funny. One thing I want to call out in uh, in this article I was reading on the thread or not the thread, I didn't know that the garbage collection ha- like locks up the GVL across threads. Right. Right. Um, That's another dimension of, of using Pitchfork versus uh, Puma or Unicorn is that traditionally, like, I think a lot of people have migrated to Puma for various reasons. Like, it's a very good server. I don't want to be seem like uh, I'm dunking on it or whatever. I think for most people, it's going to remain the best server for quite a while. But Puma started using Thread and the community in general started using Thread. It's, it's true as well for Psychic and for many other uh, popular runners as a way to fit in those small Heroku boxes. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say like 500 megs is small. I, I know that uh, it's probably some people who cannot <laughs> say that that's gigantic already. But like, I think threads were really became popular in the Ruby community in good part to reduce memory usage. But then they bring this problem of like you're sharing your memory space, which means you share the global VM lock. So you're going to lose, like if you have too many threads, you're going to, like your latency is going to suffer because you're going to hit the, the GVL lock. I think you had a, a very good episode with uh, Ivo and Joe a few months back, uh, which explained this in great details. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that, yes, the GC is also stop the world. It's going to stop all your threads. So if you have two requests and one is spewing a lot of garbage, like allocating a lot of, of objects that the garbage collector has to clean after it, the other request that is totally innocent, but is end up being in the same process. It's going to be regularly stopped as well. So you can, um, what I like and why we kept deploying Unicorn for so long at, at Shopify, we still, like our main apps are still on Unicorn. And sometimes I get the question of like, why didn't you migrate to Pima? I thought like Unicorn was deprecated or abandoned or whatever. It's because like this isolation, like being able to say like this endpoint is like really well optimized and it's going to be not being impacted by a, a less important endpoint but maybe wasn't as optimized and they won't impact each other's. And that's very, it's a very good property for us. That's very important. And the other thing is, uh, of course, resiliency. It's like if, uh, if for some reason something is buggy, like, uh, you know, that's a Chia PC bug I told you about previously of like, oh, the VM is locked up or whatever. With Unicorn, you know, there's only one request per process. So you can just use, um, Unicorn timeout, which basically kill the process. Like when I say kill is like, unique sick kill kind of thing and like there's no there's no coming back from that and you sure you know for sure all resources everything's going to be cleared up whereas interrupting a request in puma is is a bit more tricky like if you try to kill the thread maybe it had like it was holding on to something and you might leave like the process in a weird state so I, I sleep better at night knowing that we can just like we have a very hard timeout and if something really funky is happening it's just gonna go away 
Yeah, it's so funny that timeouts are such a, a problem in Ruby. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think it's particularly Ruby, you know, like it's it's just very hard because it's very hard to really compute, okay, what's the maximum amount of time this request gonna take, right? Because you, you can benchmark it, but like you will need to do every single network call you do, you would need to sum up all the timeouts of it. So if if you have like a one second timeout to Redis and you do 10 Redis call, then maybe your request is going to make 10 seconds, which is awfully long for web requests. I mean, it depends what you do, but for the most part, I would consider anything above 100 milliseconds to be a bit on the slow side. So, but of course, you're, ne- you're not going to put a, ready- a timeout on one of your database to 10 milliseconds to accommodate that, right? You cannot lower the timeouts enough. So, and then you also have the problem of uh, batch requests, right? It's very common, like especially in Shopify, when you have like an admin panel of some sort, if you say, I don't know, delete, delete products, or delete rows, generally you have like a batch function where you can delete 10 at once or 100 at once or a thousand at once. And it's very easy. It's very hard from like a, a big application perspective to say, okay, I, I'm going to enforce that every single of my requests going to end up in this meantime, right? There's a good pattern. Like it's kind of a, not really the subject of today, but there's a good pattern for that, which is a, the deadline patterns, which is instead of, Having a fixed timeout for every single of your calls, you have like an object, you have like a say, you allocate say five seconds for your requests. And every time you do a call, you subtract from that deadline object. And so if you only have like 10 milliseconds remaining and you try to do a call, it's like, no, sorry, you, you blew your budget and we stopped there instead of waiting for the web server to say, oh, it's been too long. Sorry. Yeah. I think I've also heard that as short circuit. <laughs> Is that different? I think you might mean uh, circuit breakers. Which oh, are slightly, yeah, that's slightly different. That's mm-hmm. also a, a gem I worked on. Uh, you might have heard of uh, Simian. Oh yeah, that's a slightly slightly different thing. It's uh, it's more it's more about detecting errors. It's like if you do five calls to the database and they all failed, you just start to assume the database is done and you stop doing calls. You immediately fail. This is to have, the main the main reason is to avoid like a failing call is fine. The problem is the timing of call. Because if you have like a one second timeout to your database and you do five calls, it's five seconds. You much rather say, okay, the database is dead for now. We fail in like one milliseconds, right? So it's a way to propagate errors faster to avoid cascading failures. I see. So I had a question about Falcon <laughs> and how <laughs> and, and how Pitchfork maybe parallels in some ways. Because I know Falcon is you know, not forking by default, but it does have a forking option. Yeah, I haven't looked too much into it, but I think in Ruby, you know, you could think that Unicorn is a forking server and Puma is a threading server, but actually in Ruby, there's no reason not to fork at least for splitting your load a bit and then use either thread or or fibers. I haven't used Falcon much. I think it's the whole async like fiber APIs Samuel is working on is is nice. But I think it's nice because it allows me to do things that before people would have reached to say Node.js or Go before, you know, like some very IO intensive. And when I say IO intensive, I don't mean like 80% IO. I mean like 99.99% IO. I mean like something where, you know, you subscribe to a Redis, like you listen to a Redis um, stream or something, and then you just forward that back to clients that are listening to WebSockets or something, you know, like those kind of teeny proxy things. Historically, like five years ago, everybody was doing that in, in say, Node.js, and I really don't like Node.js. <laughs> so I'm happy that like next time I need to do something like that, I can just do it in using those async thing. But all the issue I have with threads, which is like the shared uh, memory, you know, like the, the shared memory, the GVL, 
the GC, all these things. They're essentially the same with, with fibers. Fibers are, are basically like very lightweight threads. So you can only have one fiber executing at once. So the problem remains. It's just, um, it's just a way to have tons and tons of threads. And actually they're, um, they're very slightly worse than threads because let's say you use Puma and you have like your two threads and one of your developer, for some reason, did a Fibonacci endpoint. You know, you compute Fibonacci and like he's asking for Fibonacci 50. So for Ruby, that's probably going to take 30 or 50 seconds to compute, right? And that's just going to be the CPU crunching up and it's not even going to do any IOs. It's just going to crunch up. Well, Puma, with Puma, the, the Ruby VM is going to say after 100 milliseconds, it's going to say, okay, you guy, like you, this thread has, has used too much CPU. I'm going to let the other thread run for a bit. And like every once in a while, it's going to let it continue, but it, it's just going to prevent it from using all the CPU in the process and starving other, other requests or other collocated things. If you do this with Fibers and Falcon, it's just going to compute its Fibonacci for 50 seconds and no other request is going to go through in that meantime. So because fibers are not preemptive, except like they, what Samir has been working on is like to make them automatically preemptive when they do IOs. But if you don't do any IO, you're just going to keep running. And so for me, I think they're, they're great, but to do like very, some very tight systems where you don't use too much dependencies, you really know what you're doing. You know, like those tiny services, but yeah, I would be, I would be scared to, I mean, we are an extreme case at Shopify, but like there's like literally hundreds of people committing to or monolith on a regular basis. And like some bad code goes through sometimes, like, uh, having a system that's resilient to mistakes, but to use just like, okay, a mistake went through and we can correct it later. It's very important for us. So like, yeah, but, but we'll more. I know there's a lot of people asking to, to make Rails compatible with, um, with Falcon. I did a bit of work in that. In that regard, because I think some people out there certainly have, have the use case, but I think it's a minority use case. But again, every, like what I said for Pitchfork, every app is different and going to see different benefits from different systems. So I don't want to, to say that, like, don't use it. I just want to, I would like people to be very aware of like the, the trade-off basically, because any good engineer should tell you that nothing is better. Like there's nothing better than something else. It's just all thread off, right? You just always lose something when you gain something. There's no, there's no free lunch. I, this makes a lot of sense to me why you would go the forking route now. Because at first I was definitely questioning it. <laughs> uh, why continue the long, uh, drawn out process of, uh, you know, this for it? It seemed like things were getting, you know, more along the threaded approach, and then yeah, absolutely. Uh, pulled pulled back. And from a Rails perspective, you know, having all of that stuff loaded up front and then optimizing the memory as it runs definitely makes a lot more sense because the average use case is what you have a database, you have Redis, and then that's it, and you're serving requests, and that's like a typical Rails app cycle. And then you have other services kind of built up, but for the most part, you have your primary bulk monolith stuff up, and then it just optimizes itself as it stays up. And so it makes a lot of sense now seeing kind of where Shopify is heading <laughs> uh, with their copy on write optimizations and widget and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, to help support forking as like the happy path, you know, the Rails way. Uh, I guess that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, I don't have the pretension to say that it should become the happy path, but at least that it should be one <laughs> of the supported paths. You know, I just, again, sure. like, I mean, like you're saying, every app is unique. <laughs> exactly. But every, every I mean, in my experience, snowflake. every app is a snowflake. But I mean, in my experience, I've consulted a lot and 
you know, a lot a lot of Rails apps are very typical and follow that optimizations right. that would be brought from a forking server. So it makes a lot of sense. But I'm I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on how to juggle those two and and where Shopify sees itself. Because I imagine like Shopify has other things other than its monolith, probably hundreds of apps, yeah. maybe thousands. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, that maybe maybe wouldn't work well also with pitchfork or a forking approach. How do you how do you juggle those two and help keep people on the right path? Yeah. So I mean, the, the way we approach things is that the company is too big. There's just way too many apps and way too many developers to to be like to hold everyone by the end and do everything right. So we try to work as like we write what we want is to write shiny tools so that you reach to those because they look cool, relevant to do your own thing <laughs> on your own. And that's all we we help with standardization. Uh, if we really have to, we're gonna use like cops or whatever like mandatory kind of proceedings. But ideally, at least the way I see it is like I like to, as you said before, create a happy path for people to go into rather than to try to police them afterwards. And so to give you a, a, an idea on the current situation is that like all, all bigger apps like the Monolith and like the storefront under like the, the one seeing a lot of traffic and that are under a lot of scrutiny, we definitely use Unicorn for them. And then for the long tail of smaller apps, especially like the internal ones and stuff like that, uh, Puma is more the default right now. I don't think, like, depending on all my effort to try to make Pitchfork really more plug and play, more easy to use by like making most of the ecosystem compatible with, uh, with reforking, we might switch to it as a default later on, but like Puma is definitely going to stay as like a, a staple for quite a while. And, and sorry, I forgot the question. Uh, I was going to oh, say, yeah, how do you... we juggle the two. Yeah. Yeah. How do you um, juggle it? And also, the memory pressure is more and more a problem as the apps get bigger, right? As I said, uh, we use, so for on Romanoid, we use 32, like we fork 32 times, like we use 32 workers for web server on the monolith because we need to really shrink the memory usage. But we have some internal apps that don't even need 32 workers to save the amount of traffic they get. So there's also the question of like, at which point does pitchfork or things like that will become an interesting memory optimization and like a, a cost reduction for Europe? Because I was saying we have like, we have a, a gigantic monolith, but then we have a long tail of like probably a thousand, I'm not even sure of the number to be honest, but like a thousand rails up left and right. Some are internal, some are like applications that are you that you can install on your Shopify platform so they're developed like as a, as a add-on kind of thing. There's a really a lot of different applications and they're all all rise. So I'm not sure what else to ask about this. Are there other things that people should know about Falcon or uh, Pitchfork uh, that we haven't asked? Yeah I'm not too sure what else to add to be honest. I think that's probably the bulk of it. <laughs> All right. Well, I found the project on GitHub under Shopify slash Pitchfork. So you all can find it there. And yeah, let's go ahead and just move on to the next segment of the show then and do our self-promo shout outs. So Valentino, we'll start with you. What are you working on that people should know about? Let's see. Right now I'm continuing to work on uh, my, uh, it's a, an AI project at Doximity called DocsGPT. Really excited to, to release it officially. <laughs> it's out now. You can play with it. But basically, just putting some of these chat GPT tools in the hands of doctors and the context of healthcare. So we're doing a lot of fun stuff. And uh, I've just been having so much fun playing with the AI. <laughs> it's it's so it's it's too fun, you know. Very cool. That does sound like fun. 
I think I mentioned this last week, but I'm still working on getting the launch of the Catapult Your Coding Career podcast up. I'm hoping to get it to the point where it's a daily podcast, probably five to 10 minutes. And I've been doing coaching with people. I've just had people coming in and kind of do a preliminary coaching call. Some of them sign up for actual coaching, but a lot of them are asking the same kinds of things. And the other thing is, is that I went through a process when I was a developer, a newer developer, just learning new things and advancing and, you know, having a mentor and stuff like that. And so I wanted to share kind of the things that I learned that work for me to level up in the ways that really mattered so that I could get the job that I wanted. And so just walking through that. And then, you know, from there, once you're a senior developer, architect, whatever, people have all kinds of names for the positions, right? Then what? Then how do I go from there to making a difference in the community and contributing and, you know, creating content? So I'm planning on covering the whole process to that. I'm planning on talking through a lot of the issues and answering the questions. So you can check that out at catapultyourcodingcareer.com or you can just find it on topendevs.com. Jean, what are you working on that people should know about? Well, I was saying earlier, I'm like working on onboarding some apps to pitch folk, but uh, at the same time, I'm also working on like uh, tuning the garbage collector settings in Monolith like this week because we recently upgraded to Ruby 3.2 and uh there was some kind of major change, so we need to redo our tuning, and like we're trying to just really reduce the latency impact of GC, and we're discovering mm-hmm. some nice stuff. So we're probably gonna, uh, I mean, probably gonna take a while, but uh, we're hoping to come up with a blog post with a guide on how to tune GC. Even though the first line of the guide is gonna be, you probably don't need to do it, but <laughs> yeah, but it's something else to tinker with. Yeah, yeah, but y- you can do some interesting things. You can, you can instruct the GC that like, oh. I'm definitely going to need that many objects at runtime. So just don't bother. Start directly with that much space available. You can also, you have a, a bunch of, uh, like the GC use heuristics. Basically, it just tracks mm-hmm. a bunch of metrics and say, oh, when I cross this threshold, I'm just going to do a major GC. I'm going to go over all the heap, right? I'm going to, and that on big heaps, that can take like a long time. And we, we just found like the OGC was way off on some assumptions. And yeah. We probably have some uh, nice things to share in, I mean, it's going to take a teeny while before we actually write the post, but like a, a good month or something. Cool. But yeah, you can also shoot yourself in the foot by like <laughs> setting the limit too low or, or something like uh, some uh, some developers at Shopify have been trying to optimize the service by just trying to do what, uh, I don't know if you remember back in the day, people were doing uh, out-of-bound GC. Like it was this idea of um, you don't disable, but like um, after the request is complete, you run GC to just try to make space so that hopefully you don't actually trigger GC while you perform the request. And but the idea is just to raise the limits basically, and then you explicitly trigger the GC at certain points. But by doing so, like they they actually made things worse. Like they they called us to say, oh, we have problem with the GC, and the first step we did was just like, oh, we're gonna reset the default config and it just immediately went way faster. So that's why I, I really want to warn people out there, like just don't do it unless you, you're set and you need it. Makes sense to me. All right. Well, let's do our uh, regular picks. Valentino, do you got some picks? Sure. So uh, thanks to uh, Jean's GVL instrumentation API. I know I've always given this recommendation before, but he has a GVL tracing gem now. Uh, you can trace GVL stats pretty Pretty great stuff. Yeah, I see you also have contributed to that, John. So thank you. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm I'm poking around in there too, trying to see what what's happening because 
it's definitely interesting that now that I know that uh, threads locked like that during garbage collection, it's just interesting to see uh, what's happening under hood. And the other pick I have is uh, it's called Watch Me Forever, and one of my coworkers shared this, and it's basically an AI generated uh, sitcom cartoon <laughs> that mimics mm-hmm. Seinfeld, and it's just continuously new content that is all generated live so you could just go and watch it and it's a, a new you know episode of Seinfeld recreated as like this weird like <laughs> it's it's really kind of amusing to watch uh and <laughs> kind of kind of just incredible uh so I recommend checking that out as well awesome all right I'm gonna throw in a few picks so uh this week I'm going to pick oh what was it that I picked because I start I always start with a board game and my brain is oh i picked sushi go party so sushi go party is a game you play you can play two to eight players and it tells you how to kind of build the deck up because you have different food items that you add into it kind of like from a sushi restaurant and then they each score differently right so some of them are worth just straight up points uh some of them are worth like three of them are worth 10 points or two of them are worth seven points or like there's the spoon that allows you to basically put a placeholder down. And then when you use the spoon, what you wind up doing is you put two cards down and you put the spoon back in your hand. But when you play a card, you play a card and then you pass the your hand to the left. And so you're consistently having to choose, you know, trade-offs because somebody may take the card that you, the other card you want before the hand gets back to you. That's pretty simple. Board Game Geek ranks it at a 1.3 weight. So it's a pretty easy game, but it's a lot of fun. And my sister and brother-in-law, when they come over to play games, a lot of times if we have just a half hour before they're going to take off, that's what they do. They just, they, they we'll just play that and then, and then they'll go. So anyway, it's a fun game. I really like it. So I'm going to pick it. As far as other picks go, I'm going to pick Riverside. That's what we're using to record this. I, like I said, I'm starting new podcasts and Riverside's awesome. Even if it's just me by myself, since it records a local version for every person, if their bandwidth isn't good or something like that, it compensates for all that stuff because you still get a local recording. But the other thing is, is that it makes it really easy for my team to pick it up because they can pull the recording off of Riverside, basically pull it out of the cloud. My editor can do his thing. You can actually, when we're recording, you can put a, uh, like you can mark the cl- a clip in here. And so we're going to start actually putting on social media like 30 to one, 30 second to one minute clips of us talking, right? So whatever the highlights are. Anyway, it's going to be awesome. So we're, we're really getting into that and making that work. And then one of the other things that they're going to do with those videos is we're going to open up a TikTok account. And it's going to be a mix. It's going to be a mix of clips from the show and of me basically sharing some of the stuff from either Catapult Your Coding Career or I may just get on and say, hey, here's what I'm doing in my office or whatever. And you'll be able to see that on uh, TikTok and Instagram. So um, if you want to follow us there, it's Top End Devs in both places. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's been it's been real fun to just kind of play with some of those tools and uh, see what you can do. And then the last pick I'm going to pick is Midjourney AI. I've been using it to generate artwork for various things. I've actually used it. It's a lot cheaper than having 99designs do a podcast artwork design. If I can get a picture I like and put the podcast name on it, I am totally good with doing that, right? As long as it reflects what the show's about. I do kind of like the the logo approach of like the Ruby Rogues podcast artwork, right? It looks more like a logo and less like a AI-generated picture. But 
sometimes when I tell it to generate like an, a logo or logo artwork, it puts like weird because it's generated off of other content, right? Is the way that it works. They've got images that have been put in and then it ingested it into their AI algorithm. And so when you ask for something, it uses the keywords for those other things. And so you get weird text artifacts in it. And I don't know that I necessarily know or want to know how to go in and clean those up. So anyway, it's it's also nice because I've been putting the artwork in on emails and stuff like that on the email list. And so it's been nice to kind of have something that I know isn't copyrighted, right, that I can stick in. So unless it's got blatant something that it pulled off of somewhere that is copyrighted, you know, it's it's good to go. So yeah, so I'm going to pick Midjourney AI. And I think that's what I've got. Jean, what are your picks? Well, it's not going to be very original, but I'm going to pick a Ruby 3.2 <laughs> because it just got out of there not so long ago. And I think, I think, uh, I mean, we've, yeah. seen, um, we've seen an increase of people upgrading fairly early. I've seen a bit of chatter about it on like Twitter, Reddit or, or whatever, but I, I really want to recommend upgrading. It's, it just performs very well. It's quite stable. Uh, there's a few teeny widget corner case bugs, but like uh, we should have 3.2.1 in, in a matter of days or week now, because very soon. And there's some nice things like, uh, like Valentino said, there's a GVL API I implemented, which allow you to instrument uh, and to know whether you're using too many threads or not. Mm-hmm. There's widgets, obviously. I, I work closely with the widget team and I know they're dying for more, not necessarily public chatter, but like more public feedback about like, did it work well on, on your application or not? Right. Things like that. So, yeah, it's, that's what I said to Matt a while ago. There was this, um, public uh, common knowledge in the Ruby community of like the pointer releases where RC is at best and that you should wait for like the point one or point two. But this mm-hmm. has changed and like no, like there's no problem putting a 3.2.0 in production. So people, if you hear me, please do. Uh, you're missing out. Cool. Yeah. I've been, uh, putting anything new that I build on 3.2 and it, it's cool. I like it. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming, Jean. Thank you. Thanks, Valentino. Until next time, folks, Max out.